When people get some sort of foodborne illness, you want the source off the market as soon as possible. At one time, that took weeks or even months. My next guest developed the application of a methodology called genomic epidemiology to foodborne heebie-jeebies. It greatly speeds up pinpointing the source. For his work, he's a finalist in this year's Service to America Medals program. Dr. Stephen Musser is Deputy Director for Scientific Operations in the FDA's Center for Food Safety and Applied Nutrition, and he joins me now. Dr. Musser, good to have you with us. Thanks, Tom. Thanks for the opportunity to talk about this. And COVID has, in the last few years, kind of wiped everything else off of the public consciousness. But foodborne illness is pretty nasty. Give us a sense of how widespread it still is and what some of the effects can be. I'll give, just give you some estimates from the CDC. They estimate that about uh, 48 million, almost 58 million people in the United States get foodborne illness every year. About 128,000 are hospitalized and uh, 3,000 die. These are estimates, of course. might also be helpful to put it in economic terms. The economic burden of, of foodborne illness is about uh, $18 billion annually. So it's a bad problem one way or the other. And I want to get right to your work, which is genomic epidemiology. What is that? <laughs> well, if you imagine uh, the, the technology that's used, if you've ever heard about prisoners being uh, released based on their DNA because they were improperly accused or the evidence was new evidence has come forward based on genomic information, it's the same type of approach, except we're looking at the bacteria's DNA fingerprint instead of a human's bacterial. And we match them up and we can say, yes, the same one is found in a food that's found in someone that got sick. So we basically have a very specific and sensitive method for looking and comparing what people got sick from and how they got sick and where it's linked, which is something that's new and we didn't have before. In the past, we basically had a, uh, an approach that looked at people that got sick and it was low resolution. So we knew people got sick, but we didn't know how they got sick or where they got sick from. It was a good technology at the time, but this is a much better system. Uh, it's much more sensitive and much more easy to link illness with human disease. And just a detail question here. Someone is sick and it appears to have the symptoms of what we understand to be foodborne. How do you obtain the bacteria samples that might be relevant that are in that person? Really good question. So we, we, uh, we work with CDC and other federal partners. CDC does the clinical illness. They fund public health across the nation in every state and in many of the big cities. And if someone gets sick with a reportable disease like salmonella or E. coli, the public health system there will pick that up from the person. Doctor will give them a culture. They'll isolate the, uh, the bacteria. They'll sequence it and upload it into the central database, which is at NIH at NCBI. And then we and FSIS do something very similar. FSIS does the meat and poultry part of this. We do surveillance. We pick up samples from imports during inspections, uh, thousands and thousands every year. And we isolate the bacteria from those samples and upload them into the same database. And so the way this works is uh, we have some very sophisticated computer algorithms that look through these uh, data and every day tell us whether we do or don't have matches. Uh, well, matches in the sense that they're related to each other. And this really helps us uh, pinpoint disease in ways that we couldn't do it any other way before. And just one more detail question. You know, we know that now that foodborne illness comes from a variety of types of foods. So is the bacteria profile that might be in chicken 
kind of unique to chicken versus what might be in turnips, which is different from what might be in arugula, for example? Surprisingly not. So if you had salmonella, we've done a huge study uh, to kind of answer this question on the eastern shore of Maryland, Delmarva Peninsula. And we looked at, there was a very famous salmonella type there. It had a specific pattern from CDC every year. It made people sick. And we looked at where we could find that. And we found it in chickens. We found it in the water. We found it on produce. So it's exactly the same. It just depends on whether you're being careful with your processing of chicken or you're being careful with the water you use when you're irrigating crops or when you harvest the crops, are you being careful with the way you harvest them and pack them? and ship them. Uh, so you can have the same bacteria just... Sure. We're speaking with Dr. Stephen Musser. He's Deputy Director for Scientific Operations in the FDA's Center for Food Safety and Applied Nutrition, and a finalist in this year's Service to America Medals Program. And knowing these profiles and being able to match them, how does that translate operationally so that local authorities that detect this thing and the CDC involvement so that the food that might be contaminated is found and taken off the market quickly. Sounds easy, but it's pretty complicated. There's two ways to do this. For example, let's say we did an inspection of a plant and there were no illnesses associated with any of the products, but we found a pathogen outside the plant or not on a food contact surface. We would sequence it and upload it. And then sometime later, let's say um, there's some bad conditions at the plant that could be weather related, just change in management, anything. And we start to see illnesses. So in the past, we couldn't intervene. Now we can intervene immediately. We know exactly because the sensitivity and specificity is so good, we know exactly where to look. And we can go back to that plan and see if they have a problem and have that product removed very quickly. So that's called retrospective. What happens most of the time, and that is we start to see illnesses. CDC starts to see the same people getting sick from exactly the same genetic organism. And they start to look at, well, is it from a food? Is it from a, you know, something where, where might they have gotten sick? And, and this used to be uh, still very complicated. If you imagine eating a salad, you got lettuce, you got tomatoes, you got croutons, you got spices, you got, you know, you could have 50 ingredients in there. And uh, you ask someone, did you have a salad? And they say, yes. And what did the salad have on it? And they might remember tomatoes or lettuce. But with the genetic information now, we can say and help these epidemiology investigations and say, well, it's likely from the southeastern part of the United States or the southwestern, or this looks like something we imported from Southeast Asia, or uh, we've seen this before in Spain uh, from imports. And so we can take those 50 component lettuce mixtures and break it down quickly and say, it's most likely this ingredient or most likely from this area which speeds the way we do investigations. And if we look at the last 10 years since we've implemented Genome Tracker, what we see is that we detect more outbreaks because we have more sensitivity, but we also intervene faster. So instead of having seven, 800, 1,000 people sick, we have fewer, 10, 20, 30. So we've really impacted not so much the number of outbreaks, but the number of people that get sick from that uh, using this technology. Over time, the more that you get into the genome tracker database of bacteria, the better the system will work. It sounds like it's self-improving on a continuous basis. Yeah, that was one of the things that attracted us to it. Uh, interestingly enough, we had been you know, looking for this since the mid-2000s. We had a number of important outbreaks, and we were trying to find a way to more quickly get into this. And we tried lots, many, dozens of different approaches. And when we arrived at this one, I remember looking at the data and going, oh my, this is going to work. And this is going to work for a very long time because you don't have to repeat it. 
You don't have to develop a new database. You can add to it. It's self kind of self uh, correcting in that if you get something, a sequence that's wrong, it automatically shows up. The technology was remarkably easy to use. We've, we've trained, well, all 50 states, as well as some other states, international uh, governments. And in all cases, usually within a week of receiving the instruments and training, people are uploading sequences into the database without any trouble whatsoever. So it's it's been a remarkable journey in, in watching it grow. And this has really been a long-term journey. I can remember the Vichyssoise bacteria scandal. I think that was in the late 1960s, and people started mm-hmm. to become aware of this canned potato soup that you didn't heat up, and it was poisoning people. I don't know how long ago that was. But just briefly, what is your background? How did you come to this type of work and end up at the FDA? Kind of through a long, circuitous route. I've been here, I'll be celebrating my uh, 31st anniversary as an FDA employee this August. I came here, I was a postdoc at NIH. Uh, my background is medicinal chemistry, I, how you make and synthesize new drugs and evaluate them, particularly in uh, my specialty was in cancer research. I was recruited by FDA to do analytical chemistry and work on a variety of food things. Thought I would stay for a little while and leave and look at uh, you know a drug manufacturer and I really loved it. The work was was very interesting. There was always something going on in food. People are really interested in their food and the quality of their food. And so uh, I started as a bench chemist. And uh, 31 years later, I ended up as a deputy center director. I've been in this position for about seven years and have to look at all things safety, uh, not just uh, bacteria, but viruses, chemicals, cosmetics, uh, pre-market issues, just a whole range of things. And I love it. It's just a great job to have. And do you ever still get close to a Bunsen burner and a flask anymore? Well, I think most of the uh, laboratory people now take great care when I do laboratory visits to not let me touch anything. You know, let me hold that for you. Let me get that for you. Don't touch that kind of thing. So, no, I don't. I don't get to. I get to look at it, but I don't get to touch it anymore. Dr. Stephen Musser is Deputy Director for Scientific Operations in the FDA's Center for Food Safety and Applied Nutrition. Thanks so much for joining me. Thank you, Tom. He's also a finalist in this year's Service to America Medals program. We'll post this interview along with a link to more information at federalnewsnetwork.com slash Federal Drive. Hear the Federal Drive on your schedule. Subscribe at Podcast One or wherever you get your shows. Hello, I'm WIPA CEO Shane Canfield, and thank you for joining us on another episode of Lessons in Leadership. I'm honored to be joined by Angie Bailey, founder and CEO of Ananda Life. Angie has a remarkable career in public service, beginning as a GS2 clerk typist with the Social Security Administration. And over the next 40 years, Angie steadily worked her way up through the government, ultimately becoming the Chief Human Capital Officer at the Department of Homeland Security been recognized with presidential rank awards by two administrations for leadership, innovation, dedication, and commitment to the country. Angie, thank you for joining us. Thank you, Shane. What a pleasure to be here. Angie, you've made quite a name for yourself as a leader in the federal workforce. Who was the first person you remember looking up to as a leader, and what about them inspired you? You I often think about this because, you know, sometimes we think of the people that we look up to the most is being somebody that throughout our career has, you know, been at the highest levels and all. But, I, you know, I've got to go back to honestly, whenever I was 10 years old, and uh, I remember I really wanted to play Little League play- baseball on a boys team. I was the only girl. And interestingly, it was the women who would keep saying to me that, no, I couldn't play. 
And then one day, whenever I was there to sign up yet again, uh, there was this guy, his name was Delbert Beiser. And uh, I remember he had like red hair and he had wadded tobacco in his mouth and greasy overhauls and everything. And he said, you know, I'll take her, I'll take her on my team. And, you know, just looking back on that, there's so many leadership lessons and things that I just really admire about him. And actually, I thought about throughout my entire career, he took a chance on somebody he didn't know. He um, put aside whatever conscious or unconscious biases that he might have had about having a girl on a team. He treated me the same, uh, whether you know, if I wasn't performing, I got benched just like the boys. I got no special treatment. And, and, and he was just really honest with me and he just included me in everything. And so looking back on it, you know, really it was Delbert Beiser, our local mechanic in our little small village that was, I think, my inspiration for going on to, I hope, become the leader, um, you know, that, that I wanted to be. I'd say half of the guests on this podcast have had similar stories where they reach back to either childhood or young adulthood. And I, and I think as leaders, it's really incumbent upon us to keep that in mind, that, that what we say and do, admit, especially in the younger ages, really can have a lifelong impact. How would you describe your leadership style? And, and how has that developed over time? I would say that the one word that describes my leadership style is that I care. Um, I guess that's more than one word, but I care. Uh, I, I've always cared about the mission. I've always cared about the people. I've always cared, you know, about making sure that that they had what they needed or that they were developing the way, uh, you know, that they aspired to develop. And I tried to take this approach of not treating people the way I wanted to be treated, but instead treat people the way they wanted they want to be treated. And I think that that really kind of developed over my career. You know, I started out just like most leaders do where it's very results driven. It's all about the bottom line. You need to make sure that you get everything accomplished because, you know, that's what everybody's looking for, the goals, the metrics, et cetera. But I think as you mature and you go along, you start to, to your point, you draw back on those early childhood days or early adult young, you know, whenever you're a young adult and you say, you know, I think that there's a little bit more to this than just the bottom line. And so over time, I really began to, I, I think, see a much bigger picture and the entire ecosystem, if you will, and how the people themselves fit into all of this. And that ultimately, at the end of the day, it was all about the people. And so, I, you know, I think my, my maturity allowed me to then shift and focus more on the people than, than so much on the results and bottom line. You've been recognized with two presidential rank awards two different administrations. You founded your own company. Tell us a little bit more about your background from the beginning and, and how did that lead you to where you are today? Well, you know, it's kind of interesting, like you said, that I started out as a GS2, a social security administration. I mean, what I really wanted to be was a criminal prosecuting attorney. It's, that's That was absolutely my dream. I sometimes joke and say what I really wanted to be was a mafia don, but that wasn't going to work out. So, you know, had to be a criminal prosecuting attorney. But, you know, I had to get a job to pay for college. I, you know, it wasn't in the cards that I was going to be able to go to college without a job. So I applied at the social Security Administration, or I'm sorry, at the unemployment office. And lo and behold, I got a job at Social Security. I didn't even know it was federal, to be honest. Uh, from there, I went to the Department of Defense and I found this, this career field called labor and employee relations. 
And honestly, it was as close as I was going to get to being a criminal prosecuting attorney. I didn't go on to be a, a criminal prosecuting attorney, but I went on courtesy of Department of Defense to get both my bachelor's and my master's in leadership because the whole study of leadership, I just find incredibly fascinating. Um, you know, from hi historical to current uh, current times, I just it's just something that's just really fascinated me. And so I just, I would say I'm a lifelong learner of leadership. And then I would say some of the other things that got me maybe where I am today is I never really said no to anything. If people asked me to take on a new challenge, even if I wasn't sure I was going to be successful at it, I would say, you know what, not sure this is going to work out, but more than happy to give it a try. And it always worked out. But I think giving things a try and just not saying no to opportunities is what really led from one position to the next. I feel like I was always rewarded for just stepping in or stepping up and taking on the challenges that sometimes no one else wanted to do. Angie, thanks so much for joining us today. Oh, thank you, Shane. It's such a pleasure. I, I really appreciate you giving me this opportunity. Thank you. This has been the Lessons in Leadership podcast. I'm CEO of WEPA, Shane Canfield. Looking forward to talking to you next time. Grab a 30-day free trial of Live by Live Plus, and you'll get unlimited skips, commercial-free music, and all of the podcasts and live streaming events you can handle. Visit livexlive.com slash podcast one to learn more and start your free trial.